We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. The following program has been pre-recorded. Thanks for tuning in this weekend to Let's Talk Portland. Odyssey Portland's weekly public affairs program. I'm Gary Bloxham. On the show this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Richard Brandis. Dr. Brandis is a gastroenterologist with Adventist Health in Portland. Hey there, Dr. Brandis. Welcome to Let's Talk Portland. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd get started today by having you tell our audience about you. Tell us about your practice. Uh, as you said, I'm a gastroenterologist over at Adventist in Southeast Portland. Um, I uh, am relatively new to the area. I was in private practice for a long time, um, but uh, wanted to do something different, something a little more challenging um, in a good way. And I think Adventist is a, a really special place to work. Um, I've been doing gastroenterology for about 15 years overall. Um, satisfying work, um, interesting work, um, and uh, it brings a lot of satisfaction to me. And I feel like you can help a lot of people um, and, and, and uh, help them live healthier, better lives. And maybe we should explain what gastroenterology is. Sure. Uh, yeah, right. So gastroenterology, it, it is, it is, or GI, as we like to say. Um, so really anything from, uh, from the top to the bottom. So anything that involves the mouth uh, all the way down to the backside um, and also throwing in the liver, uh, gallbladder, bile ducts. Um, so any uh, disorders, diseases, concerns, uh, and importantly, screening tests that involve uh, esophagus, stomach, small bowel, large intestine, or colon, uh, that is all our domain. How do you get inside to take a look at those areas? Getting inside is not always the first step, but uh, depending upon the symptoms uh, and the concerns, that's certainly where you end up. So you can start with, with just imaging. You can do ultrasounds, you can do CTs, you can do MRIs. But sooner or later, uh, by the time a patient lands in our office, um, we're probably talking about doing an endoscopy or a colonoscopy. So uh, for those procedures, patients asleep, uh, they have no memory, they have no pain that anything happens. And once they're asleep and comfortable, we pass little cameras. Uh, they're usually about, a, about as big as round as your index finger, uh, but quite a bit longer. Um, and we can get down and, and look at, uh, very easily, we can look at esophagus, stomach, and the first part of the small intestine. Um, and then from the other end, we can do the colon um, and maybe a little bit of the small intestine uh, from that end as well. Small intestine's big. Uh, even though the small intestine says small, it's, it's the longest one, um, coming in about 15 to 20 feet and kind of do a little more specialized endoscopy to get there, not as, as a routine of a thing, but we can do that as well. What's the difference between the small intestine and large intestine? So uh, small intestine uh, starts just outside your stomach. Um, again, that thing's about 15 to 20 feet long. Um, and primarily that is where we are breaking down food, uh, collecting nutrients, connecting, collecting the things that the body needs uh, as building blocks. 
Um, they get sent up to the liver from there, and the liver does, uh, that's the factory for your body. So the liver takes all that stuff and, and builds it into the good things that you need to, to run the system. Um, so beyond the small intestine, uh, you get into the colon. The colon is, is two big things, waste management. Um, that's where we're getting rid of the parts we can't use um, and form it into things that we're going to get rid of. Um, but also a lot of uh, water absorption in the colon. So a uh, big job of the colon is absorbing water. Um, and that changes a lot of things uh, if you drink a lot of water or don't drink a lot of water. Is the colon part of the large or small intestine? The colon is the large intestine, so those are interchangeable. Um, like so many things, there's, there's, there's two names for it for reasons I'm not actually familiar with. And you talked about screenings. What kind of screenings are there? Um, so, yeah, the big one that we do is screening colonoscopies, which uh, most people have heard of um, and many people are scared of, uh, but that's a pretty straightforward thing. Um, screening colonoscopy. So there's a lot of ways to screen for colon cancer. We can take a step back. Um, you can do stool tests. Um, there's two different types of stool tests. Uh, they test for different things. One tests for blood. Two of them test for breakdown pot products of blood or actually DNA that might be released by a cancer if there's one in there. Um, and then you can do a colonoscopy. Colonoscopy, you're actually taking a look inside the colon. Um, you're looking for polyps specifically. So polyps are little growths that aren't cancers, um, but depending upon what kind of polyp it is, it might turn into a cancer down the road. Oh. So if we see those, we take them out on the spot and check them out under the microscope, and that kind of depends when and if a patient has to come back. How do you remove a polyp? A uh, couple different techniques. Primary one is a little tiny snare, so a little uh, metal loop, um, and it extends all the way through the scope. We open it loop it over that polyp, uh, and then close it and just cuts right through it. Wow. Yeah. And that's not painful. It is not painful. There's, <laughs> there, are, there are none of that type of pain receptor uh, in the colon. So yeah, it works pretty well. And, and again, the patient's asleep. So yeah, it's a uh, vast majority of patients who have a polyp taken out, um, never feel any adverse uh, events related to that. I can attest to that. I've had two colonoscopies Perfect. and felt, didn't feel a thing. That's, except four, that's four colonoscopies in the room that have been uh, on receiving <laughs> end. So, yeah, it's easy. Really I, easy. I did kind of wake up during my last uh -oh. one, though, which was kind of weird. Uh -oh. I didn't feel anything, but I was like, and just felt paralyzed. Did you, did you, did you watch the movie? Or no. They, they just put you back to sleep? They put me back to sleep. That's, that's good. What movie were they showing? Or did they well, usually it was show? you. It was you. Oh, it was... <laughs> oh, I didn't. I see. I didn't get to see that. No. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about colon cancer. What is that? So colon cancer uh, still ranks in the top three cancers that kills both men and women in this country. Um, and uh, so tumors forming in the colon, usually from a polyp. Um, and, you know, it can take years and years to form a polyp and even more years to have that polyp turn into a cancer, um, which is why a screening colonoscopy is so important because we can get in there uh, and find those polyps and get them out of there. And effectively, colon cancer is largely preventable um, just by doing those tests. Well, it's a pretty slow, slow growing cancer. Is that correct? correct. Correct. And that's why, you know, we mentioned earlier, if you take a polyp out, depending upon the size, the number of polyps, the type of polyps, we might tell a patient to come back in three years, five years, seven years, um, or if there's nothing at all, then, then maybe 10 years. Um, just because we know that it does take a long time for those things to, to transpire and to evolve. Wow. 10 years. That's a long time. Yeah, if you're completely clean and no polyps, then it's 10 years. I go back every five. I have some family history. My mom. Correct. Yeah, and that's, a, and that's a big Trump card right there is that you need to. Uh, yeah, that's, that's an important part of it is that if you have a family history of, of colon cancer, then most people are going to be doing every five years. 
Uh, why is family history so important? So there are definitely some identified uh, genetic traits that result in familial colon cancers. Um, and then there are colon cancers that we know run in families, but we can't tag it to a certain gene. Um, but you can write out a pedigree and say, yeah, my, my dad's dad had it, my dad had it, and my sister had it. So, yeah, I'm going in every five years and making sure that, that I didn't get that gene either. Is, family history is probably not the only uh, sign, right? You should be looking for other things. From a symptom standpoint, um, symptom standpoint, again, colon cancer is tricky because there's not a lot of symptoms of colon cancer until it's pretty advanced. Okay. Um, so, you know, if a, colon can, if a colon tumor gets big enough, uh, that you're starting to get a blockage and things aren't working like they should and people feel bloated, they can't eat, they don't want to eat. Um, you know, it's colon cancer by the time you have a symptom is a, a pretty big deal. Okay. Which, of course, now I beat the same drum, which is why I just get in and get that colonoscopy done early. Is colon cancer on the rise? It's actually not. Um, it is, we're finally getting, uh, getting a little bit of control over it over the last probably decade or so. Um, funny numbers though, it's been on the decline, but that decline is slowing. So we're, we're not, it's, it's starting to kind of turn back up. It's, it's still on the decline, but it's, we're, uh, we're not finding as much as we did. Any idea why it's on, on the decline or, or maybe slowing down its decline? Uh, certainly the decline is, is because we're getting in there. We're stopping it before it starts. We're getting polyps. They don't ever have a chance to, to do their damage. Um, and screening colonoscopies are, are a big, big part of that. Yeah. Are there other options besides colonoscopy? There are. So, you know, we kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, other options besides screening colonoscopy, you can do what's called a FIT, uh, fecal immuno, uh, oh, geez, I'm going to blow it, fecal <laughs> immunohemoglobin testing. Um, that's amazing uh, you remember that's, that. That's, <laughs> you stall out. Uh, that's a yearly test. Uh, it's just a, a you, you put in a stool sample and you check that. You can do fecal occult blood testing, which is, testing also for blood. Um, it's a little bit less specific um, than the FIT. Uh, fecal occult blood is testing for blood. Um, FIT's testing for processed blood. We're getting into the weeds here a little bit. Um, and then you can do something. There's a new one that's called Colgard. I mean, people are seeing that on TV. There's mm -hmm. lots of advertising on that. Colgard's a pretty good test. Um, and it's, it's going to be a better test in a few years. Um, Colgard is testing <clears throat> for blood as well as uh, colon cancer DNA. Um, and so those are those are all useful tests. Um, depending upon which one, you might do one every year, might do it every three years. Uh, if it turns up positive, you're going to get a colonoscopy. Um, there still are CT colonogra colonography or colonoscopy, depending on what you call it. So C the CT scanner um, mm. can, in theory, screen for polyps and tumors. Of course, the trick there is is you have to do the prep for that CT colonography. So if you do the prep and they find something, then you got to do another prep on a different day and still come back and get a colonoscopy. So that's a little tricky. Um, and the stool tests, again, they're useful. They're good tests. Um, but if they find something, then you got to get a colonoscopy. Um, and they're not checking for polyps. So if one of those tests is positive, the big concern is that you've already got a cancer in there. Okay. So many people, when they think about colonoscopies or start talking about colonoscopies, are terrified of the prep. Um, so... How can you set, how do you set your patient's minds at ease when, when it comes to the prep and, and for the procedure? Um, a lot of that, so the procedure is pretty straightforward. It's, um, you know, again, patients are sleeping the whole time. Um, they're comfortable with rare exception. They are sleeping the whole time. 
and they're comfortable. Um, and that's the easy part. Um, and admittedly, the hard part's the day beforehand. Um, you know, the prep is getting better. Um, as I say to all my patients these days, it's, uh, I'm not going to tell you the prep is a party, but it's less miserable than it used to be. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, and we're finding some tricks here and there. So um, there's some studies coming out on like low residue diets. So we're finding ways to say, hey, you can probably eat these things, uh, but you got to stay from this other stuff that that forms bulk and is going to is going to confound the prep. Um, definitely the sort of thing you want to talk to your gastroenterologist about. But there there's some there's some some gray zones that are developing. Um, but mostly it's not just that giant gallon of nasty flavored stuff anymore, um, which is what everybody thinks of. Yeah. Um, but we have a lot of small volume preps, um, stuff that's half that much, um, and stuff that tastes better. Um, you know, you can, you can use stuff that just tastes like Gatorade. You can use actual Gatorade mixed with other things. Um, there's a new one now that we're using a lot of, um, it's just pills. Oh, wow. You take a pill a minute for 12 minutes, um, drink a whole bunch of fluid afterwards. And then a few hours later you do the same thing again. Um, so it's, uh, what you're drinking, what you're getting in your system is much, much improved. Uh, the outcome it, is the same. Yeah. <laughs> you it, cannot change the outcome. It really is. Uh, it's different. My first one 10 years ago was like drinking salty grape juice. Yes. It was just like, oh boy, yes. this is not good. And the, this last time it was like Gatorade. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was still salty and, but it was lemon lime and, right. and uh, the volume was much less. Yes. We're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. Someday there'll be like just one magic pill that has no outcome or a magic <laughs> wand or something, but uh, we're, we're getting there bit by bit. We're talking today with Dr. Richard Brandis, gastroenterologist at Adventist Health in Portland. So uh, tell us about, uh, talk to us about how diet can impact gut health. Diet and gut health is a, is a tricky one, um, but also intuitive, I think. Um, you know, I try to spend as much time as, as we can talking to patients about diet. Um, you know, a lot of questions of what's the best diet, how do I, you know, what's the best for, for keeping my gut healthy. Um, the, funny, the funny point in all of it is, is that we do know that there are healthy bacteria. They're supposed to be in your gut. They do good things to you. <clears throat> Specifically in your gut, we're talking about the colon. So the colon has healthy bacteria that are in there. Um, we also know that over time, the variety of bacteria that are in our colons is becoming less and less probably due to our diet, probably due to uh, our overuse of antibiotics. Um, a lot of that has improved in recent years, but you know, there was a period of time where the second you had a sniffle, you went and tried to get some antibiotics. And so, so how do you keep that flora? How do you keep that little uh, environment healthy? Um, so a healthy diet is obviously where that starts. So we're talking fresh fruits and vegetables. We're talking lean proteins. Um, I like to tell my patients to, to shop the outside of the grocery store. The second you yeah. go down the aisles, the second you're eating stuff that comes out of boxes, out of plastic wrappers, cans, even frozen stuff, um, as soon as it's processed, oh. uh, you're getting into trouble. It's just it doesn't have the nutrients you want. It's got a bunch of preservatives in it. Um, so stay on the perimeter. Stay on the perimeter. Shop the outside <laughs> of the grocery store. Uh, and I'm, I'm prone to saying, uh, you know, if, if you if you look at the label of something and you can't pronounce one of those words, then you might want to think think twice about putting in your face hole. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> if I can't pronounce it, I get I get edgy. Yeah, I could. <laughs> Why is that in there? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and farmers markets are a good place to go. Absolutely, farmers markets are great. Um, co-ops. I mean, this time of year, there's a lot of startups again on like winter co-ops. Um, I know of several restaurants in town that kind of run those, and and you can do pickups that are local. 
Um, and it's cool. It's cool to go out and, and meet the people that are growing your food. Like that's a sure. very fun yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, I have a big garden at home and I love that. I love hauling stuff up out of the garden and you're cooking it the same day and there's, you can't replace that. Yeah. Um, food, eating should be fun, right? Eating with people, cooking your own food should be enjoyable. Um, and I think the ritual of doing that um, tends to, to lead to eating better and that's important for good health, for gut health. What sort of impact is of like fast food and stuff? What what does that do to you? Um, the opposite of what we've been just been talking about, right? <laughs> okay. So anything that's prepared, um, right? So fast food, Grubhub, takeout, um, all that stuff is convenient. But I think it does a couple of things. One, there's a lot of of not great nutrition there, right? There's a lot of fillers. There's a lot of high fructose corn syrup. There's extra starches. There's extra sugars. Um, there's tons of super interesting but depressing articles out there about like the food scientists whose job it is to add a little bit of this, a little bit of that. How do I adjust the crunch factor to make people just want to keep eating this stuff? And it's it's frightening. Wow. Um, and so and a lot of those will have a big what we call an osmotic load. So the stuff that you can't digest that is going to kind of just surge through you and you know all the uh, the old lore and truths of like Taco Bell and things like that. And it's like, well, there's a reason, right? Like. <laughs> Um, I'll ask my patients when we have these talks and I just say, well, hang on, is there food in your food? Hmm. Hopefully. Right. <laughs> but how much, right? So, so it's depending upon what you're eating, um, you know, the nutrition as it relates to how much filler is in there and how much, how much just poor quality nutrition, those are big deals. And so, yeah, the fast food industry is, is rough if you're worried about your gut health. It seems like uh, healthy eating is kind of on the rise. I think so. Would you agree with that? For sure. For sure. And it's, you know, and I don't know that there's any one right way to eat healthy, but it's funny because everybody who comes to me and says, hey, I've made these changes and I feel better. Yeah, it works. And it doesn't seem to matter what diet they're doing. It's the diet that you enjoy. Going back to that point, right? Like if you, as long as you're eating something that makes you happy um, and makes you want to eat, well, great. And if you feel better on it, you've, you know, that's that's one step farther. So if you can be healthy um, and like how it tastes and it's not, you know, like eating a piece of cardboard, then, yeah, that's a win. Yeah. What do you think gut health was like? This is going to make you hypothesize, but what do you think gut health was like in the 60s and 70s when convenience food came out like TV dinners and boxed meals and Man, things like that? Great question. Right. Because it's. And, and I, you know, I grew up, I grew up with that, right? Mom, dad, go out and here's your, here's your hunger man. Mm -hmm. You and your brother can heat this up in the oven, not even in the microwave. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a funny, it's a funny dovetail of so many things, right? So that, that's the front edge of convenience food. Um, and I can remember growing up when, when my hometown got its first McDonald's, it was a big deal, right? Like, oh, we got to go find out what's going on there. And, and yeah, so the TV dinners, um, also the time that antibiotics are really starting to, to trend, um, we're getting more and more as we hit the eighties. And so I think gut health at that point in time was probably pretty good. What's happened right after that is I think maybe the big question. Okay. Um, and I'm sure that there's an epidemiologist out there who has, has looked into this and can say, Hey, here's exactly how those trends happened. An infectious disease doc who, who's fascinated with that. And it's a, it's a great question, Gary. I would imagine that, uh, <clears throat> any sort of colon screening probably wasn't happening too frequently back then or no i mean the the big the big paper that kind of showed that there's a benefit to, to colonoscopy as colon cancer screens uh came out in 2000 
Um, and so there was some colonoscopy going on in the 70s, not a lot. Um, and that, yeah, it really started to pick up in the, in the 90s and then 2000s where we were able to validate, hey, this, this does change lives. So uh, I want to ask this question, could be a little bit delicate, but uh, what do bowel movements tell a person about their health, their gut health especially? I don't know that, I don't know that you can say that a bowel movement does, tells you any one thing right away unless you're acutely ill, right? So that's the big one is, well, yeah, if you're, if you're really sick and you're having diarrhea, then we know immediately that something's off, probably acutely. Now, size, shape, frequency, there are some variables there and there are, you know, we can really get into the delicacies of uh, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This is a popular topic these days. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, news out there about it. There's a lot of internet discussion about it and it's a real entity. Um, but just because your bowel movements change doesn't mean that that's why. And so I think, I don't know that your bowel movements yourself are gonna tell you a whole lot um, just from what you see on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, that being said, I mean, you can do cultures. You can, there are labs that will run a whole biome. They'll tell you, hey, here's exactly what bacteria we grew out of your colon. And is that healthy? Is that not healthy? And um, not a lot of that is well validated, but um, it's, uh, I think if you're consistent, I think if everything's the same day in and day out, that you're doing something right. Yeah. If there's a lot of variability, then yeah, maybe it's time to have a discussion with your primary care doc, find a gastroenterologist and say, hey, what do I need to be doing differently? Do I need to eat differently? Do I just need simply more water? Um, you know, or do I need to take a look in there and, and see if there's some type of inflammation or, um, you know, important disease going on? I interviewed a couple of people, young people. The topic was uh, colon cancer in, in younger people. Yeah. And they, their advice was look in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. Inspect what's going on. Sure. Yeah. Like, see, we joke about that, except it's not a, maybe not a joke, is there's two kinds of people in this world. And there's, there's the people who look and the people who don't. And yeah, yeah I'd say be a looker. You know, <laughs> um, it's going to tell you something and it might just be, all right, things are the same. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. I thought that was pretty great advice. It is. It is. <laughs> From people who, yeah, de definitely had a problem. Uh, talk a bit about probiotics. It should people, how do you how do you get probiotics, and should we supplement those? So probiotics, depending on the circumstances, um, there's a again, this is one of these fields that came out, and there's a lot of things in favor of it, and then there's been a, a little bit of a pullback, but I still think overall that they're good. Um, I think that anytime you've had an acute change, um, and this is more kind of my observations. I can't say that I've got a, a big background of data on this one, but I think anytime there's been an acute change, whether you had to have your gallbladder taken out or you had acute diarrhea and just got better on your own, you will have changed the balance of what's going on in there. Um, and I think it's that those are great times to take some probiotics. Um, if you've had to take antibiotics, so you took mm -hmm. antibiotics because you had an illness, you had a sinus infection um, or a surgery that required them. Um, and that's a great time to take some probiotics because the balance of you know, that good flora, that good bacteria in your colon, that balance has not changed. Um, so those are great times to take probiotics. Um, there are some people, uh, there's a great study that came out probably five years ago. Um, there's some people, they take probiotics and it makes kind of their other, their symptoms worse. They're bloating um, and mm. diarrhea. Uh, there are, there's a subset of people who get worse on probiotics. Um, and we don't quite understand why, but we just, we see that correlation. So I think across the board, um, there are definitely some very good indications for taking them.
Okay. We've got a couple minutes. I want you to, to pretend like I've never had a colonoscopy and kind of convince me that I need to pay attention to my colon health. All right. So you've never had a colonoscopy. You are 45 years or older. Um, colon cancer is in the top three cancers that kills men in this country still. Um, and most likely, as a guy who's 45 or older, you've been eating a pretty American-style diet that's probably more high in fat and high in red meat and throw some barbecue in there on the weekends. And um, Those are all important risk factors for colon cancer. Um, do you have a family history of colon cancer, Gary? Yes. Uh, who in your family had colon cancer? My mother. Your mother had colon cancer. So this is a big deal, you know, and, and colon cancer is preventable. By and large, the vast majority of colon, colon cancer is completely preventable. Um, we can go in there, uh, do a colonoscopy, and we're looking for polyps. Polyps are little growths that aren't cancers, but we take them out early so they never get a chance to turn into a cancer, which a certain subset of them will. Um, you know, hard parts the day beforehand, you got to drink all that stuff to get you cleaned out. But once that's over, coming in for a colonoscopy is a snap. No. Um, you go to sleep. You wake up and say, when are we starting this thing? And it's already done. <laughs> I'm convinced. Well, I, I can also say that it's probably the best nap you're ever going to get. It's, it is. It's a, it is amazing, nap. right? <laughs> yes. The propofol nap is a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have often, but you've made it uh, nice and easy. Well, great. And, that, and that's what we do, right? I think um, putting people at ease about this is the best thing we can do. Um, just getting that conversation started for people who aren't ready to have it. Yeah. Um, that's a big deal for us. Well, thanks for being on the show and, and helping us understand this. Awesome. Thank we, you, Gary. We've been, to we've been talking today with Dr. Richard Brandis, gastroenterologist at Adventist Health in Portland. Thanks again. Thank you. If you'd like to hear this interview again, just search for Let's Talk Portland on the Odyssey app. Let's Talk Portland is an Odyssey Portland public affairs program. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.